Hey there, Zach here. It is so good to be back in your podcast feed after our unannounced and unexpected hiatus. As I mentioned in our previous episode, we had a bit of a perfect storm of personal and professional chaos, but hey, we're back now with weekly episodes starting today, and I cannot wait to share with you the guests that we have lined up this season. Oh, I'm especially excited about this episode today. We have been sitting on this interview for what feels like months now, and oh my goodness, it is so good. But hey, enough of me talking about the episode. Let's roll that theme music. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. Our guest today is the research director at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. He has been particularly involved in the study of mystical and religious experiences, a field referred to as neurotheology. He's published over 250 peer-reviewed articles and chapters on brain function, brain imaging, and the study of religious and mystical experiences. He's published 12 books, which have been translated into 17 different languages, including the bestsellers Why God Won't Go Away and How God Changes Your Brain, both of which I have mentioned dozens of times on this podcast before. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Andrew Newberg. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the program. It is such an honor to have you here to finally get a chance to pick your brain. Um, <laughs> Such as it is. <laughs> I think long-time listeners, yeah, long-time listeners of the podcast will recognize your name, even if they haven't read anything that you've written, because mm-hmm. I feel like I've mentioned your work a hundred times over the past hundred episodes. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I, I self-identify as a scientifically-minded Christian mystic, and your work has been profoundly important in giving me language to explain why that's not so much of a contradiction, which uh, I'd love to really dive deeper into the mystical aspects in a, in a few minutes. But before we do, can you just kind of briefly unpack the work that you do and how you go about doing it? Sure. So, uh, you know, you mentioned the term neurotheology, so I'll start with that. Um, you know, the, the concept uh, of neurotheology is that it is a, a field of scholarship, a field of research that seeks to understand the relationship or the link between our brain and our religious and spiritual selves. So a couple of important points about that. Um, one is that it is not just a scientific study of religion. Um, it's not just using brain scans to study meditation and prayer and mystics and so forth, although we do that. Um, it's also not a religious uh, evaluation of the merits of science, um, although that's that's part of it as well. But ultimately, um, I really feel like it has to be a true two-way street where you really have kind of the best of what science and technology has to offer, the best of what religion and spirituality has to offer, and find ways of kind of bringing those two concepts together, those two ideas together, to help us to understand who we are as human beings, and particularly the, the, the spiritual part of ourselves. And I also think that, um, you know, you talk about what it is. Um, so, you know, on one hand, you have the neuro side, and so we use a lot of neuroimaging techniques to, to study people in meditation and prayer and so forth. 
Um, but the neuroside to me also is, is much broader than that. So it's, it's, it's psychology. It can be trying to get at things like the feelings and the thoughts and experiences that people have. Um, it could be anthropological and, and looking at, you know, sort of different cultures and, and evolution and, and all the different ways we kind of, and, you know, all, all the different ways that we get at what's going on in our brain and in our body. And then the theology side of the term um, is obviously a very limited concept as well in the sense that theology is a specific discipline that looks to kind of unpack and understand a, you know, the, the sacred texts and the ideas of a specific tradition. Um, we, can, we can do that. We can look at how we address questions such as, you know, the nature of sin, the nature of revelation, and, and, and what, what does an understanding of the brain bring to the table when it comes to that kind of discussion. But, um, but the theology side also, I think, has to be broadened. So it does include uh, mystical experiences. It includes various practices, meditation, prayer, and so forth. Uh, it includes how people believe and, and why people believe the things that they do. Uh, so, so it really, you know, you have to kind of expand both sides. And I think if you do that, then it becomes a very exciting field that um, has a, a, a specific approach to thinking about things that blend science and religion together, but also, you know, is extremely expansive, as I, I know we'll be talking about today. But there are so many different ways of trying to get at so many fascinating questions about what what religious and spiritual attitudes, beliefs, phenomena, and so forth um, really mean to us as human beings. In looking back at my at the notes I've taken on on your books, I think probably the section that I've highlighted the most um, is the the section on rituals from your book, Why God Won't Go Away. Um, right. Particularly because when COVID hit and religious institutions had to kind of shut down and go online, what we found was that a lot of our rituals stopped working. Uh, they didn't work so well. Right. They didn't translate so well. You know, in the in the Christian community, there was a lot of debate and argument about whether or not you can do, say, communion from home. You know, the higher churches who believe that this is literally the body and blood of Christ, they they said, well, you can't do that at home with Oreos and coffee. <laughs> and, you know, the lower churches said, well, of course you can. It's just a ritual. It doesn't, right. it, it, it's just a symbol. It doesn't really matter. And I, I, I really found it profound the way that you explained that, you know, there's a couple of really important things to rituals, that it's something that breaks from the norm so that it tells your brain this is something special. And then the sort of rituals that lead us to a higher level of consciousness or a, a, a kind of transcendence of, of our thinking self um, usually have some kind of aspect of overloading either the arousal or the quiescent systems of the brain. Um, and I know I've explained that in previous episodes, um, mm -hmm. but I'm sure I butchered some of the neuroscience. Um, so I'm wondering if you can help lead us through what's happening in our brains during these sort of uh, really meaningful rituals that we do. So, well, it sounds like you got it pretty good. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> it, <laughs> I, well, and, and, and part of, you know, part of why it, it's hard to mess up to a certain degree is that there's so many different kinds of rituals and they all do things a little bit differently. Um, mm -hmm. But but you, you bring up some really important points, too, about the whole issue about, you know, how uh, how modifiable are they, um, how much they can be translated into other you know ways of doing it and still maintain um, the essential elements and ultimately the essential effects that rituals have for people. Um, so, 
you know, to, to start with the, the mechanism by which it works, um, the, the very basics of it are that most rituals have some type of rhythmic element to it. Um, and that rhythmic element can be uh, also expressed in, in different ways um, and, and kind of on multiple levels. So there can be the rhythmic elements of the practice itself. You know, you mentioned communion, so we'll take that as an example. But, but just the pace with which that occurs, the, the, the standing up, the walking to the, to the front of the church, the, the receiving of the, the wafer and the wine and so forth. I mean, all of that and then repeating that over and over on a daily basis, weekly basis, yearly basis, um, generational basis. Uh, you know, it, it's something that, as you mentioned, um, kind of works. We, we talk about rituals often, um, you know, they can be top down or bottom up. And, and many of the rituals uh, are bottom up, meaning that there's an experience that's kind of coming into us and then ultimately kind of heads up into the brain. And so um, they can be very calming rituals and uh, perhaps, uh, you know, singing some kind of chant or something like that or a hymn um, of a very slow song, then that, that relaxes us, um, that the rhythms of the music, the rhythms of the movements um, will relax us, that quiescent system, as you mentioned. But as that starts to occur, then that ultimately does connect the, the, this um, arousal and quiescent systems that you're talking about, or what's called the autonomic nervous system. And that's really what connects the brain to the body. So um, the, in the brain, you have a structure called the hypothalamus, which really sits at the very base of the brain and regulates that arousal and quiescent mechanism. And so if you start with a ritual that's very calming, then you get into these progressive feelings of calmness, you know, ultimately, you know, very profound blissfulness. And then up in the, in the hypothalamus, what can sometimes happen is that there is a kind of uh, a flipping of a switch, if you will. Uh, we, we, we used to refer to it as breakthrough, um, you know, this turning on of the other side, uh, of the arousal side. And then that's part of what happens where you, you get that little, you know, that, that chill, that, that feeling, that, that stimulation that signifies the importance of what you're doing. And then this starts to set off a cascade of changes up into the, to other areas of the brain, you know, quote unquote, higher areas of the brain. So the limbic system, which is our emotional areas like the amygdala. Um, and so now suddenly, you know, it's, it's not just that you're doing the ritual, but now you feel something, you know, you feel this emotion, you feel a powerful rush of energy, you feel a powerful feeling of love, um, you, you, you sense the meaning and importance of it. And then these, uh, the limbic system is ultimately connected to the, to the cortical areas of the brain that kind of write this whole thing into your memory. So now, you know, the ideas of the religion, uh, the tenets of the religion of, of what Jesus means to you, um, of what, you know, again, just in the Christian context, but this of course can be expanded to any tradition. Um, those fundamental ideas, concepts, they become kind of written into the, to the, to the memory banks of your brain in a very, very intense, very powerful way that as you do it over and over again, um, it becomes the way you believe, the way you think about the world, and then it gets kind of re-expressed into your, your thoughts and your behaviors uh, and, and the ways in which you live your life. And, and there is this kind of reciprocal action going on. So, you know, you can think about something in your brain and then you feel it in your body or you can feel it, which is the top down. 
um, and then you can feel it in your body and it gets up into your into your brain ultimately. And of course, um, you know, we're, we were just talking about the rituals starting with the sort of the calming part of it. But then there's other rituals that are very energizing and, very, you know, have very rapid rhythms and um, and they can be. Uh, they can drive us in, in that more energizing way. And then eventually you have this kind of blissful feeling uh, at the end. And so uh, ultimately with some of the mystical experiences, these very intense spiritual experiences, you get this blend of profound blissfulness, profound you know, energy, um, and, uh, and, and really winds up creating a very intense overall experience for the person that uh, they might refer to as a mystical experience or an enlightenment experience, something like that. Um, but uh, the, these rituals, um, as you mentioned, I mean, they're extremely powerful. They bind people to an idea. You've, you're not, it's not only that you're thinking about it, but you're feeling it in your body. And it also binds uh, people across, you know, the aisle, uh, across the, you know, across time, across families, across generations, and, and you know, binds you all the way back, you know, 2,000 years to, uh, to, to the very basis of, of these concepts and these ideas. And to just pick up on the, the, the first point that you meant, we, all, we talk a lot about uh, in Why God Won't Go Away and some of our other work about sort of the, 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 the rhythm between permanence and impermanence. I mean, ultimately, um, rituals do need to sort of be able to adjust and adapt to, uh, you know, to a thousand years time. I mean, we're, we're different today. We have, you know, phones and Internet and all that, um, which they didn't have 2000 years ago. So so clearly, you know, these rituals have changed and adapted, but if they if they change too much, you know, if suddenly now you have to do communion, you know, online, um, then it can potentially lose its meaning. And and then the question is, you know, at, at what point? And of course, each ritual and each tradition will have different uh, answers to that question. But at what point does something no longer kind of have the meaning and the value and the purpose that it's supposed to have? Uh, and can you either readapt it or do you actually you know go in a different direction and of course different religions have arisen uh, with the you know the whole uh, protestant uh, 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 um, the um, reformation and so forth i mean you know if you they went in a different way and and they said you know we we don't agree with this particular rituals and these particular ideas were going to go in a different kind of uh, way. And, uh, and of course, if that's the case, then it can, it can change the tradition. It, they were still Christian when they went to Protestantism. They didn't become Muslim. Um, but, but eventually, if you go far enough, it becomes something completely different. You know? So uh, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a fascinating you know, aspect of sort of the evolution of the rituals over time um, and, and religions over time. They're not static. Yeah, I, you wrote in Why God Won't Go Away that all this quote, all the great scriptures make the same point. Fundamental truth has been revealed to human beings through a mystical encounter with a higher spiritual reality. Mysticism, in other words, is the source of essential wisdom and truth upon all all religions are founded. But before religions can begin, mystical experiences must be interpreted in rational terms, and the ineffable insights they bestow must be translated into specific beliefs. Um, one of my favorite you know, 18th century writers, Thomas Paine, uh, once said that revelation is between God and one person and then everything else, all religion is just hearsay. <laughs> and uh, that was his, that, that's one of the reasons why he died alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it strikes me in this sort of post-religious society that we're, um, 
we're kind of moving away from from that 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 folks are thinking to themselves like oh isn't religion just like how somebody else interpreted a mystical experience why then should i be bound to something that somebody else had when i can just have my own mystical experience my own spiritual experience my own kind of spiritual but not not all that religious kind of experience um is there a is there a value to religion anymore, or is it just kind of an outdated system of control? <laughs> well, you know, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, <laughs> great question. <laughs> I mean, you can deny that dichotomy altogether. And just <laughs> well, no, I, you know, I, um, I taking kind of a, you know a, a step back in terms of my you know, more larger perspective about things. And, and we look at so many people yeah. coming from different traditions. And, and uh, even in my world of integrative medicine, we're very much about individualized medicine. And there, there's two pieces to that. I mean, on one hand, um, each person does have to find what is meaningful to them. Uh, there, you know, to answer your, you know, the first part of your question, does religion have value? Of course it does. Um, you know, the, these these traditions um, are, uh, as as my late colleague Eugene Dequilly used to say, you know, we're, are well winnowed systems. I mean, they they have been developed over time. Um, the concepts and the ideas and the the rituals, as we were just talking about, you know, have have been developed over you know many many hundreds of, if not thousands of years, and 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 of course have millions and millions, if not billions of adherents. So, um, you know, there's certainly uh, a value to that. And many people can find, um, you know, not only the value in, in the actual tenets and the various uh, ideas that are part of that tradition, but the, the idea, again, you know, going back to our discussion about rituals, about the connection, uh, the connection to a community, the connection to an idea, the connection to a concept that, that, that has, you know, that, that has some value, you know, isn't just you know, something that I made up yesterday, but something that um, at least, you know, has, 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 has stood the test of time, you know, uh, regardless of how it came about, you know, 2000 years ago or, or longer. Um, so I think that there's certainly a lot to be said for different religious traditions. And, and when people do come to me and say, you know, what, what should I do? And, you know, what, uh, you know, what, what direction should I take? Um, you know, when people come from a particular tradition, if they feel that it had value to them if they feel that there was, uh, you know, uh, that they have a connection to it and that that connection is still usable and workable and has meaning to them, then that's great because it, it does have such a, a well-developed approach that, that can be used. Um, on the other hand, um, there are times where various religions, um, you know, for a given individual, you know, they don't make sense. And whether uh, it just doesn't make sense anymore, whether there were some specific, you know, they were, they felt that they're, you know, it was forced on them and they just don't see it anymore. Um, whether, you know, they, in their own explorations, they feel like they need to go in new directions. Um, you know, that, that becomes the sort of the spiritual, but not religious people that, that, you know, we talk about and hear about in the world today. So, um, and, and sometimes that has value for, uh, for people. And that would be something that would be important for them to, to potentially explore. Uh, and, and there are, you know, rituals that can be developed that would have not only, um, you know, not only a, um, uh, a, a value for a given person, but, you know, new spiritual approaches and new spiritual perspectives that come about. So, um, you know, so I, I think that 
it can work for the right kind of person. And obviously there are lots of people that religions work for. And again, that stood the test of time in that regard. But, um, but sometimes people, you know, need to, to, to seek out those new paths and whether it's another ancient tradition or whether it is something completely new, um, you know, that's, that's for that particular person's spiritual journey. And, uh, but I think, I think the important part and part of what we really try to emphasize in why God won't go away and, and how God changes your brain and the other books that we've written is that, that everyone has that sort of desire to seek that kind of a, a, of a connection, that kind of an answer. Um, but there are, you know, many, many different avenues and, and maybe, maybe the last way to answer your question, which is something that I say a lot, which is that, uh, you know, part of what I have learned through neurotheology and, and, and asking people, we, we, we can talk about this a little bit later, but we've done a survey of a couple thousand people's experiences, you know, and, and while we can find commonalities, there are also, um, you know, complete distinct, you know, every, every person's experience is distinct. So on one hand, uh, you know, I, 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 there are lots of religions out there that people can follow, but I've always said, you know, if there's seven and a half billion people on the planet, there's really seven and a half billion religions. I mean, you know, not, you know, no two people think about things exactly the same way and have the same exact emphasis that they place on the, the meaning of a prayer or the meaning of a ritual, the meaning of, you know, whatever their tradition is, is saying. So, so everybody, you know, you canvas a hundred people in a church they're all going to be thinking things a little bit differently. And that's just the nature of who we are as human beings. So, um, Andy, I wonder if we could step back for a minute. How is it that you got into this field? Like, I, I find I've read a little bit about that and I thought it was really interesting, but I'd love for you to just kind of share with us and our listeners what made you go into this field. Well, you know, it, it really has been a my lifelong journey, um, and and I, I do consider it a kind of combination of a scientific and spiritual pursuit. Uh, back when I was very young, and uh, you know, start first started thinking about these questions about religion and and the world and and what was true and and how we would know it. Um, yeah, I, I was I was always a little um, I don't know if disturbed is the right word or or just. Uh, couldn't quite figure it out, you know, like, 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 why, why, if we're all looking at the same world, you know, why, why aren't we all the same, you know, why don't we all think the same way? You know, why, why are there Republicans and Democrats? Why are there Christians and Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus? I mean, why aren't we all just looking at the same world and, and coming up with the same conclusion? So I said, well, you know, I, I guess the real, the real fundamental question then is, you know, well, what's real and, and how do we get to know that? Um, so in my own mind, I said, well, let me, let me start. Let me think about this a little bit. And my first thought was, well, it's our brain that um, that helps us to think and, and take in all of this information and try to figure out and put together a perspective of what our world is all about. So I started to look at the brain and neuroscience and try to understand, you know, what what neuroscientists have understood in terms of uh, our thought processes, our emotions, our beliefs, our, our consciousness. But as I kind of went through my training and, and kind of heading into sort of maybe my college age years, um, realized that neuroscience seemed to, you know, while it was <laughs> it was wonderful and had some tremendous things to say, uh, really it, it seemed to have some limitations, especially when it came to things like consciousness and some of these very intense and unusual experiences, the mystical experiences that people describe. So I thought, well, maybe I got to look at them from 
you know, from their perspective. Uh, so what, what is a mystical experience? What is, what is something spiritual? What is religion? What, what, you know, what did philosophers have to say? Theologians have to say about these questions. And, and I started to, to explore all of that <laughs> and, um, and, and certainly studied that a lot uh, in college and, uh, and, and looked at a variety of philosophers and so forth. Um, so all of this was kind of swirling in my own mind and um, and eventually, uh, I when I entered into medical school, I had this incredible fortune of meeting up with two mentors who were just wonderful. Um, one of them was the person who, that taught me about neuroscience and neuroimaging, and uh, got me and started and doing brain scans of, of all different kinds of neurological and psychiatric issues and problems that people faced. Um, but I also connected with this Eugene DeQuilly, who was a psychiatrist and an anthropologist by training. And he had been asking questions similar uh, about the nature of religious experience and, uh, and practices and rituals, um, actually since the, from the early 1970s, really. And so he and I started to really uh, try to figure out exactly what was going on in the brain but we were trying to basing that off of old data. And eventually, you know, as, as I always like to say, the, the, you know, the light bulb went off. And I said, well, if we're studying the brains of people, you know, if we're studying Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and depression and so forth, why can't we study religion and spirituality and, and look at practices like meditation and prayer using these same uh, imaging techniques? And that, that's exactly what we wound up doing. And then, you know, developing more detailed, robust ideas about what's going on in the brain during these rituals and different practices uh, and, and just continue to expand the information that we could learn about, you know, a- asking questions. We, we decided that it was so fundamentally important to not just do the brain scans, but you have to really take stock in what a person is thinking and feeling when they have these experiences. And so uh, we, we ran an online survey to ask about people's experiences. And we didn't want to just take, you know, the, 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 the uh, Mother Teresa's and, and the, the Buddha's uh, perspective on all these experiences, but what does the regular person feel? And, um, and that's, you know, we, we had, we had the ability to look at all of that. So, so in and, and as I went through all of this, um, you know, it, it was very much a, a kind of personal contemplative process as well. It became a very much of a, a kind of meditative, uh, approach, contemplative approach that really, in my view, kind of combined what the spiritual perspectives and the philosophical perspectives were the the scientific perspectives and and in my own mind whether whether I'm ultimately right or not I'm not sure but uh, I, I keep feeling that that to get to the answer that to that first question that I had about what's the nature of reality um, the, the best way to get to that answer is going to be to have some kind of combination uh, of science and and spirituality uh, that if you kind of put them together uh, in some way, that that's going to be our best opportunity to get to an answer to that fundamental question. So have you um, faced any pushback in the scientific community for your work? You know, have there been those that, because I've heard in some of your uh, other interviews you've done uh, and talks you've done, you've talked about, you know, the importance of the rigor of science, um, which I highly value. And I was really happy to hear you say that. And so I'm just curious, with your work, has anyone in the scientific community throughout your career really pushed back on that, saying, how can you study the impact of religion on the brain or anything like that? 
Well, I, you know, early on, certainly, <laughs> um, you know, certainly some of my mentors and, and people who cared about me said, you know, what, be careful, you know, don't, uh, don't commit uh, academic suicide or whatever. But, um, I, you know, I, hmm. I have tried and I mean, I'm, I'm sure I have not been fully successful, but I, I, I have tried um, to, to do what you were talking about. You know, I tried to, to make sure that the science that we use is good, as rigorous uh, as possible. Um, you know, we're always kind of pushing the envelope. So whenever you do uh, these kinds of studies, you know, there, there's all, I mean, I, I've gotten fascinated by the whole methodological challenges. You know, if you're going to study prayer, um, how do you study that? You know, how do you, how do you bring somebody in? Um, can you, you know, shove them into a scanner and tell them to pray and hope that they, you know, do it the right way? Um, how do you know what they're experiencing? So, you know, there's a lot of really interesting <laughs> You know, I, I don't know how much everybody else is, is excited about it, but to me, I wrote a book called Principles of Neurotheology, and, and in there, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about methodological issues, and that includes things like definitions, you know, even how, how do we define what prayer is, what meditation is, um, how do we study it, what, what are the best approaches to use, uh, how do we think about these kinds of questions, how do we get the, the qualitative data that we need, how do we get the objective data, how do we merge them together. Um, so, so, you know, I, I, I think that while, you know, certainly there's always going to be people really on, on both sides, uh, on the, you know, the very profoundly religious side, as well as on the very, uh, scientific side who, who may you know, question, um, you know, what's the value of doing this? Um, obviously if you're a deeply religious individual, um, it doesn't really matter what's going on in your brain. It may be nice to know, but um, obviously, and, and I appreciate that, you know, there, there's, it, it doesn't change. Uh, if I say that your brain, you know, your amygdala lit up, um, you know, that doesn't mean that your belief in God is, is right, wrong, false, true. You know, it's just, it, it's just a biological correlate. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, the, from the scientific perspective, uh, yeah, you know, sometimes people are like, well, you know, what's what's the value in doing something like this? But but I think that, um, you know, again, I, I hope that I have been able to to walk that line and, and kind of, you know, not be uh, not make too many, uh, you know, overly biased <laughs> uh, conclusions about the work that I do um, to help people kind of recognize the value of the religious and spiritual side in people. You know, I, I think in today's world. Uh, and uh, we uh, recently wrote a book uh, called Brain Weaver about sort of brain health, and we talk about the different dimensions of the human person. We have a biological, a social, uh, a, a psychological, and a spiritual. And so, you know, many doctors and, and healthcare providers are recognizing the value of that spiritual side of people in helping to heal them. I mean, obviously, you may still need to give them an antibiotic or chemotherapy or whatever, but but they're going to pray and they're going to turn to their religious tradition to help them with coping. And if by turning to their religious tradition, they manage the side effects of the chemotherapy better, you can give them better chemotherapy, they have a better outcome. You know, so so there's there's potential value in understanding this, you know, certainly with COVID, um, you know, there's been so much in the way of stress and, and the, the various uh, issues that have come up in terms of dealing with uh, the, the pandemic on so many different levels and, and thinking about where the spiritual piece to that comes in. Um, so, so I think, uh, you know, far and away, uh, you know, I, and maybe I'm naive, but I just, I have not seen a lot of people, you know, <laughs> be extremely, you know, negative uh, either way. And, and most people, I think, because I am open to both sides and I, and I feel that both sides have a great value, um, 
kind of appreciate it. And, and I mean, part of what's been exciting to me in doing this whole uh, area of neurotheology is uh, I have given talks to very religious groups. I've given talks to atheist groups. I've given talks to psychiatrists and radiologists and, um, you know, uh, philosophers. And, and so uh, it's, you know, it's been exciting to me because I think there's a, there's, there's a, there's a piece of, of this that, that every person can kind of take away in terms of thinking about their own ideas, their own beliefs, whether they have a more traditional view of religion, whether they have something that is, uh, you know, a, a more uh, novel, more individualized approach, uh, whether they feel that they, you know, don't believe in anything uh, supernatural, but certainly, you know, have a connection to nature or, or to the scientific world or whatever. I mean, there's there's so many different ways of, of expressing this piece of ourselves. And that to me is, is where, you know, I hope the value of what I do comes into play. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a very good way of expressing that, that I think helps to not ruffle too many feathers. <laughs> I try. I mean, I, I really, I do feel that there's a value for everyone, you know, and, and uh, it's important to reach to where people are and, and hope that, uh, uh, it, in, in the grander scheme, I hope this helps to bring us together, helps us to appreciate each other's ideas and beliefs. And uh, um, I, I just was, uh, I just did a piece for the uh, a newspaper in Kiev about you know the the political beliefs between Ukrainians and, and Russians, and, and uh, you know it's it, it starts with discussion. It starts with learning about each other, and uh, right. you know that it's, I'm not I'm not naive to think that that's suddenly going to end the war. <laughs> But, you know, uh, if you don't talk, then you get nowhere. So um, you got to at least start somewhere. How do you make that connection to a newspaper <laughs> in Kiev? Well, you know, they were uh, it, was, it was a lot about beliefs, you know, uh, that, you know, what, what do people in, in Russia believe about the war and, and its importance and its value? What do people in, in Ukraine believe? And, huh. um, you know, I mean, obviously, there's a, a deep conflict there. And and, uh, um, and how do you how do you how do you get Back past that, you know, and um, uh, it's uh, uh, it, it's not that dissimilar from you know deeply religious groups that have great you know animosity towards each other, and and it goes back to the ritual discussion. Actually, I mean that was part of the the conversation, which is that uh, you know as as uh, Jean DeQuille and I used to say all the time, uh, and I think I think it's in Why God Won't Go Away. Um, we said that rituals are a morally neutral technology, which is that. Um, you know, they can be used towards great good. They can, they can bring humanity together. They can bring a group of people together. Um, or, you know, they, or they can create great, you know, animosity and hatred um, by saying this is our group, the, you know, the in-group, and everyone who is not of that group uh, is evil, bad, you know, uh, whatever label you want to put on that. And, and uh, uh, we've got to go out and, uh, and get rid of them. Um, and, and I mean, we use rituals all the time in, in sports um, and, uh, and, and in the military, um, you know, I mean, the, the, it's loaded, you know, and in academia. Um, so, you know, again, the, the rituals can be very powerful. It, it, certainly what they do is they bring people together, but it's the who's in that group and how do you feel to the people in the group versus how do you feel to the people outside of the group? I mean, you could have a, a small group of 10 people. And if their belief system is that we're connected to all of humanity, then then they can love all of humanity. You know, sure. you could have a small group of ten people who say, uh, "What we believe is is the is the truth." And it could be like a cult, and you know, what I we believe is the truth, and everyone outside of us, um, you know, are just complete idiots and morons and uh, and evil human beings, and we've got to get rid of all of them. 
Um, so, you know, it, it really just depends on, on sort of how that belief system is constructed and how the rituals are developed around that belief system that leads people to a very open and loving and compassionate perspective to other people or a very, uh, you know, angered and, and hateful kind of perspective. And, and part of what I hope comes out of the neurotheology research as we go forward is to understand those differences and, you know, what leads people down that path of, of very negative, hateful kinds of rituals so that we may be able to find, you know, pathways back to, to more openness and, and more, more ways of being understanding and compassionate with other people who don't believe the way we do. I think it was in one of your books, and you might correct me otherwise, um, that you mentioned that in nearly all true mystical unitive experiences, there is a sensation of oneness with all, a sort of peace, a joy, a love, an all-encompassing us-ness as opposed to me-ness. And, uh, but when, when you have an experience that is, is, is almost there, but not fully there, then right. you get the kind of semi-transcendence, but you never transcend the ego fully. And then you end up with a kind of religion that is uh, that is really focused on on in-groups and out-groups. And it's like it's, it's almost there, but <laughs> it, it's almost dangerous to be almost there, but not fully there. Am I... Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I mean, this is, uh, again, part of what we tr were trying to kind of, you know, tease out and unravel. But um, uh, you said it perfectly. I mean, that the idea that um, as you know, we talk about a unitary continuum and, you know, we have a very fragmented view of the world on one far end and, and it's just us, you know, me versus everything else and everything else has its own distinctiveness to, you know, me and my friends, um, you know, so there's a little bit of connectedness there. Me and my group, you know, who my friends are part of. Uh, it could be a church. It could be uh, a sports team. It could be, you know, a, a country, um, you know, and, and it kind of keeps expanding. And then ultimately all of humanity, uh, you know, all of the universe, you know, whatever. And uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is an interesting issue or problem there that can happen, which is that when people feel that deep sense of oneness, which is. Uh, I think a, a very, uh, when, when you have that deep sense of oneness, that which is that very core sort of feeling, um, that um, that there may be something um, uh, that winds up being very problematic if if it is not uh, of all of humanity, um, and it, and if it does foster a more us versus them mentality, uh, ver, ver, instead of something which is a very inclusive, very you know, very compassionate and open way of looking at the entire world. So, uh, you know, again, the, and then uh, again, it does, you know, it, it, th that is more likely in the, in the kinds of experiences that don't become fully a sense of oneness. Um, but even there, I mean, they could still be, you know, again, it, it has, it's not just the experience, but it's the beliefs that are encompassed within that. And so even if you don't have this intense, you know, uh, absolute unitary state, you can still have a sense of openness and compassion for others, but I would think that those states are more likely to foster uh, a feeling of us versus them, as opposed to the, the the sort of the truly enlightening kind of experiences where, you know, we talk about this in our book, uh, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, where those experiences that are the most intense, you know, when they have that complete sense of oneness 
um, <clears throat> that that you do get that that as you said that sense of joy, that sense of compassion, that sense of uh, overall connectedness with with all of humanity or with God or with the universe in in a very profound way that that really gets beyond that us versus them uh, concept. I really appreciate the the fact that a lot of these conversations are exactly the sorts of conversations that people in almost every religious tradition have had for thousands and thousands mm -hmm. of years. It's just and that it just has different language. You know, I, the way that I teach, I try to explain the, the practice of, of meditation to people I found best comes from the, the medieval work, the, the Cloud of Unknowing where uh, the author says that you need to imagine that you are positioning yourself under the cloud of unknowing, this sort of unachievable gap between you and the divine that you will never fully grasp um, with your cognitive self. And you must position yourself there and then put underneath of you a cloud of forgetting that is able to eliminate the world below while you're in this situation. And that's, that's the harder one getting your brain to forget the things around you while you thrust your spear of pure love and intention into the cloud of unknowing, expecting um, a response that will transcend the ability to explain what it is, but that it's through that experience of pure love that a, a person experiences the most truth that they will, you know, and, and so I hear that sentiment expressed in so many religions and i i hear it expressed in in your work i mean and being able to see what is happening in a brain when that kind of experience is happening mm -hmm. um i know for like many mystics and whatnot out there they go well i don't care what it looks like i know <laughs> i know what i'm experiencing right. um but for me it gives me a kind of validation that there is something different happening, you know, and that the the experience of that is different than the experience of psychosis. And right. um yeah. Right. And that that's a little bit of validation for me that what I'm doing is not just, you know, psychotic, but that it's it, there's something different. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Well, and, and, and I mean, you raised some really interesting uh, points, um, you know, uh, at which, which even delve into my own personal experiences as well, that, uh, you know, on one hand, um, you're right, you know, there, there's, I think there's value in understanding the brain and these kinds of experiences, these kinds of states. They teach us about our consciousness. They teach us about how we can actually understand these states. And, and, you know, what this continuum is. Um, and, you know, you can get into a question of, well, is does the unitary continuum, if that's something that we want to say exists, um, but then maybe there's an emotional continuum, maybe there's a compassionate continuum, maybe, you know, so are these, do they all move together? Can they move separately, apart? And again, you know, what's going on? How, how does our knowledge of the brain um, help us with that? But again, neurotheology is also about just asking the questions. What do people actually feel and experience? So if we lined up 100 people who said, you know, I felt a complete sense of oneness in the universe. Okay, great. You know, then, then let's ask them, well, how did you feel about the compassion for other human beings? How did you feel about this? How did you feel about that? And see how those different aspects of their ideas and their beliefs were changed or affected by the experience. Um, and so, you know, part of the, the science piece of it doesn't have to be the hard brain science, but just how we ask questions about what the nature of these experiences are. 
And, um, and, and you also re- made me reflect a little bit on, on Ian's earlier question about sort of how I got started in all of this. And the one thing I, I didn't mention yet, um, but in, in my book, uh, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, I talk about my own personal experiences that, that I've had along this, you know, along my path. And, um, and part of what was going on when I was talking about this idea of, uh, you know, how do we know what's real and, and how, what, what things can we use, the science, the spiritual and so forth. Um, in my own mind, one of, the, one of the approaches that I ended up taking as I kind of went through my college years was uh, a little bit of uh, uh, reminiscent of Descartes, although I, at the time I didn't know it was what Descartes was doing. Uh, it was before I read Descartes, but uh, um, then I, I realized that there was certainly a similarity there. That um, uh, I said, well, you know, if if there's something that I can't fully understand, um, you know, I'm not going to reject it out of hand, but it, it, I certainly can't accept it either, you know. So. So in my own mind, I said, well, I'll just, I'll just kind of I'll put it aside. I'll say, I doubt that for the, you know, it, it's doubted at the moment. Uh, I don't know for sure. And, and let me keep moving on. And so, you know, I started, as I said, I started with science and, and started to think about the brain and consciousness and, and different ideas and logic. And then I moved into philosophy and, and, and theology and so forth. And I kept feeling that there were, you know, I, our, our thoughts, our feelings, everything that I was processing um, I really felt like it was it was very problematic. There was no way for me to truly kind of know uh, what it was that if what I, what I was thinking was really true or accurate. And um, and finally, uh, when I was in between my college and medical school, uh, I decided I really wanted to see if I could figure this out before uh, I, I launched into this whole medical thing. And um, and so you know I spent most of that summer really in kind of very deep contemplation. And, and focusing on these kinds of questions and what I could know. Uh, and, and the experience that I had, uh, which I, for lack of a better term, I referred to as infinite doubt, um, was, was an experience where it was basically uh, that there was nothing that, that could be known and, um, and that I couldn't even know that. And, uh, you know, and it was sort of this infinite regress of doubt. And um, uh, when I've told people that and they say, well, you know, that must have been horrible because here you were trying to find the answer to your question about what's real. And you came to the conclusion that you'll never know. Um, it wasn't, you know, wasn't that just, you know, <laughs> did you want to just jump out the window at that point? And um, I said, well, you know, oddly enough, and kind of to your point about the cloud of unknowing, um, you know, to me, it was it was actually the most calming and kind of most powerfully uh, uh, sort of unifying and and, and uh, relaxing kind of experience I had ever had because it, it sort of took the <laughs> angst away from that whole search and it it kind of took me to a different way of thinking about it and so um, for me it was something where I, I I felt like I could continue the journey and continue the search but it didn't have that level of, of angst anymore and that 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 uh, it, it sort of allowed me to explore it in, in a more freer kind of form but but it had other elements of it which was kind of interesting because I mean this infinite doubt was infinite so there was this sort of unifying element Every, everything was doubted um, my my sense of self was doubted so you know that kind of you know went away so to speak and uh, in my own mind it was a um, you know, I really didn't fully understand what this experience was about, but that was also what then compelled me to want to seek out 
what other people were saying about these experiences that they had had that they referred to as spiritual or mystical or whatever, and whether, you know, is the oneness that they're talking about, was that the same or different from the kind of experience that I had? Um, was the, the unknowingness or was the connection or whatever, whatever was part of these experiences, how did that relate back to my own personal experiences? And, um, and so, you know, and yet again, I mean, it's still my ongoing pursuit. I still uh, go to that place and, and I, I have some ideas about uh, what to do with that. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still working on it. And I, I always tell everyone, if I ever figure it out, I'll make sure I let everyone know. But, um, <laughs> But, you know, it, it, it to me is still kind of, <laughs> I, I'm not going to keep that kind of good information to myself, you know, but, um, uh, yeah. but you know, it, 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 that's why, again, I, it, to me, it's still this sort of very hybrid, integrated, uh, you know, combined approach that keeps, you know, keeps looking for the answers, but but does so in, in this other kind of context, which is which is OK, you know, and and, uh, and and I feel like I've learned so much by just going down the journey, you know, not to be trite, but, you know, the, the journey has become far more important in many ways than than the ultimate outcome, although you know, maybe there will be an ultimate outcome at some point. But at this point, I'm, I'm just along the ride. <laughs> yeah. Infinite doubt is I, I think I will uh, I'm going to use that if you don't mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. I find so I, much I think it's going to be in a, that a, as well. A future book at some point, but I, <laughs> I have to figure it out yet. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Okay. It reminds me of uh, uh, Thomas Akempis, who uh, should be Saint Thomas Akempis. I have a whole thing about about that. They exhumed his body and they found uh, nail marks on the top of his coffin because uh, they had accidentally buried him alive. And they said a true saint would have accepted death, so he doesn't get to be a saint. Which I did this bogus, you know. I, I need to file a complaint with the Pope, but um, he writes in the Imitation of Christ that I, it is better to feel contrition than be able to define it, and that this this uh, this idea that there is a, a, a sort of experiential knowing that transcends the ability to define the knowing, you know. So if you have right. this infinite doubt, it's almost better to 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 live in that that uh, that cloud than it is to be able to say, "All right, now my doubt is solved and settled, and here's the right. answer." Because yeah, then you're not feeling the contrition; you're just being able to say what it is. You know? I'm wondering if you have done any research into um, ways of kind of bypassing all of the hard work of having to learn how to meditate and to be. Uh, you know, super holy to get to that place. Um, if there's any, if there's any validity to, you know, hallucinogenic drugs or uh, things like I, you know, personally find that sensory deprivation tanks are kind of like a way of going from zero to zen in thirty seconds. Yeah, yeah. Um, ha have you done any research into that, and and, and does that uh, cheapen the experience? Well, so uh, so I haven't done any of the actual sort of work with psychedelics, although in our I mentioned in our survey uh, of spiritual experiences where we got about 2000 people, um, we we use that information. Uh, one, actually, we, uh, 
Uh, we have a, a new book coming out, uh, which is going to be called The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, which is a uh, purposeful takeoff on William James's Varieties of Religious Experience, but with a 21st century update and talking about you know, what the nature of these experiences are and what we've learned over the last hundred years in terms of the brain. Um, and, and part of what has been a very valuable aspect of this survey um, is we ask people, you know, the circumstances within which or upon which these different experiences occurred. And uh, one of the articles that we did publish was a, a, a differentiation between those experiences that were had under the influence of a psychedelic compound versus, you know, quote unquote, more natural uh, naturally occurring experiences, and there was a great deal of similarities. And so, you know, part of the part of the the results of that data suggests that um, that those kinds of drugs can induce spiritual experiences that uh, can be, you know, at least seem to be as powerful, or at least potentially as powerful as as the more naturally occurring ones. Um, now, to me, this is part of sort of the larger puzzle, if you will, of, um, of what neurotheology is about. So uh, we can talk about, you know, the, the, the regularly occurring, the naturally occurring, whatever, I hate to use that word, but, you know, the more naturally occurring um, <laughs> spiritual experiences with people, you know, in meditation, in prayer, in retreats and so forth, in church, um, and the kinds of experiences that they have and, and what they mean and how they occur and so forth. Um, the, the the effects of different psychedelic compounds, I think, also has value. Um, part of the value of them is that we know where a lot of these psychedelic compounds go. We know that they affect the serotonin system or they affect, you know, the opiate system or whatever that they do. Um, but we, we know, you know, what they're affecting in the brain. So we can say, well, was that, you know, how similar or dissimilar was that experience? And does that tell us something? And you mentioned sensory deprivation chambers. Um, there was work, there's been work done with um, devices that emit different magnetic fields and, and electromagnetic waves at different parts of the brain and can induce, you know, a feeling of a presence or a feeling of connectedness or something like that. There are people who have seizure disorders who have unusual spiritual experiences. You you had mentioned earlier about, you know, uh, how do we know if we're, you know, when we have a, somebody has a mystical experience, if they're psychotic or not. And, and you know, certainly there are schizophrenics who have claimed to be, you know, the Messiah and so forth. Um, so all of these are, are incredibly valuable and important um, because they 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 are another piece of that puzzle. You know, they're trying to help. We, if, if somebody has a seizure disorder and has unusual spiritual experience, well, where's the seizure occurring? Why is it that if they have it in their temporal lobes, uh, particularly in their hippocampus or amygdala, that they're more likely to have that kind of an experience? Does that tell us that the amygdala and the hippocampus are important? Um, and, and what does it say? I mean, and then what do all of these experiences say about the realness of these experiences? And this to me is, is a really important point. Um, so, the analogy that I always like to use is, is that when I, you know, I, I, you can see, and I don't, I don't know if uh, the, the people who are listening to the podcast will have the video feed, but, uh, you know, I wear glasses. So um, when I wake up in the morning, it's a very blurry world and I put my glasses on and the world is clear. Now, the world didn't change. Um, and in some sense, my brain didn't change, but, you know, but I see the world differently. So, you know, who's to say that if you have a seizure disorder or schizophrenia or take a psychedelic compound that you actually sort of change, you know, you're sort of putting glasses on your brain and that you're seeing a spiritual world, a spiritual realm in a way that you were not able to see uh, when you were, you know, just kind of walking around. 
Um, and so, and of course, you know, shamanic cultures around the world uh, often took different, you know, magic mushrooms and things like that. They didn't see it as artificial. They saw it as a, a, just the window, the doorway uh, into the, into getting into that spiritual realm. So, um, so you know, in terms of the actual realness, while we sort of have our, our Western biases, oh, you know, you took that psilocybin and so it must be an artificial experience or something like that. Um, it, it could be, you know, I mean, it could be that it's just a purely artificial experience and, and that may say something about all these experiences, or maybe it is a way of, of getting your brain to a state that it, it didn't have the ability to do before. And, um, and that maybe it, it is a more real experience. And of course, that's always been the data that we come away with um, in our surveys and, and even what we talked about and why God won't will go away, that when people have these intense mystical experiences, not only do they have the experience and whatever elements or core pieces of the experience do they have, but it is perceived by the individual as being more fundamentally real and representing the more, you know, the, the more fundamental reality um, than our everyday experience. And, and we get into, uh, in several of our books, uh, about these epistemic states, you know, how do we see the world? And um, the sense of being more real is, you know, can be a little confusing to me. What does that mean? It's more real. Um, the, the easy example that everyone has experienced is the difference between the dream state and the everyday state. So when you're in a dream, no matter how real it feels, and some of our dreams have felt, you know, for everybody, I'm sure has had very real, you know, feeling dreams. But then you wake up and you immediately say, no, that was an inferior version of reality. This is the real reality. When people have mystical experiences, they do the same thing, but now it's the mystical reality that is perceived to be kind of the, the real reality. And then the everyday reality is then the illusion or at least, you know, isn't, isn't quite the full real sense. I always, it bothers me sometimes when people say it's an illusion. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. quite the right way of thinking about it, but, um, but at, at the very least, it's not, it's not perceived to really represent the underlying you know, fundamental nature of reality. And, and that also gets back to why I study these experiences, because um, to me, I find it fascinating that people say, I have this experience and it was more real than every other experience I've ever had. I think we need to take a serious look at what that means. doesn't mean that it is or isn't, but it certainly is something that um, should carry some weight in terms of how we evaluate it. Yeah. Well, that I feel interesting. I must say, for those listeners out there, follow your local laws. Don't uh, <laughs> we do don't not go out condone. and get some illegal drugs to? Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. We do not condone illegal drug use. However, if you right. find yourself a float spa and you can do some sensory deprivation work, I cannot speak highly enough of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but here at the at the end of our time together, um, is there anything that you would like? to uh, impart to our listeners? Anything you want them to take away from our conversation? Well, hopefully uh, they've learned a little bit about what neurotheology is, or at least a little bit more. And, um, you know, I, I so much appreciate your uh, uh, interest in, in my, uh, you know, the work that I've been involved in over the years. I, I personally obviously find it very fascinating, very passionate about it. And, and I do hope that uh, all the listeners, um, you know, can kind of explore their own ideas, their own beliefs, um, to, to kind of take a little bit of an analytical view, this sort of neurotheological, you know, what, so when I, when I do communion, when I think, read the Bible, when I, uh, go out and do charity, you know, what, what's going on inside of me, you know, what, what, what's happening in there and, and why is that, you know, is that meaningful and is it relevant? I mean, ultimately, 
whatever religious or spiritual perspective one takes, um, as it affects your thoughts and feelings and experiences and behaviors, um, you know, how do we think about that? And, 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 you know, why is it that if we decide to be more religious, we, we feel that it's important to be charitable. We, you know, it's important to go out and help our fellow human beings or, or, you know, it's important to be open to other ideas, whatever, whatever it is that we feel, um, you know, why did we go in that direction? And, um, and, and I think it's always important for people to reflect on the beliefs that they have and, uh, and challenge those ideas and challenge those beliefs and hopefully bring in, you know, these new perspectives, the, the scientific as well as the spiritual, you know, I think you mentioned this earlier, it doesn't, it doesn't eliminate any of the beliefs or perspectives, but it just gives us a new way of thinking about them that we, you know, we never had before. And, um, and being able to use that information and to explore, you know, what all of this means for us as human beings and how it affects our biology, our psyche, uh, you know, and, and our, ultimately our world. Um, that to me is, is where I think all of this information can ultimately take us. And so uh, I hope that this information is, is a useful part uh, for every listener out there who's on their own spiritual path and, and continues to explore the, the, the profound questions that we as human beings confront. And if any of our wonderful listeners want to learn more, I would invite you to check out andrewnewberg.com where you can read all kinds of articles and get links to books and uh, and so much more than we had time to talk about today. Um, so I, I want to thank you, Dr. Newberg, for being here with us today, yes, for enlightening us and helping us to understand these uh, just incredible truths. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure doing it.